you can't do everything as a founder and you have to get good at delegating, good at trusting your advisors. And, and the sooner you make that kind of adjustment in your head that you're gonna trust other people and rely on them, it just gets a lot easier. Welcome to the Going Global Podcast, brought to you by Globalization Partners. Hire anyone, anywhere, quickly and easily. Use our AI-driven, automated, fully compliant global employment platform, powered by our in-house worldwide HR experts with a 98% customer satisfaction rating. Globalization Partners, succeed faster. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Going Global, the podcast where leaders in high growth companies tell us their own stories of going global and building global remote teams. I'm your host, Diego Mendiburu, and remember that you can find all episodes of this show on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. On today's show, we're going to interview Scott Orn. Scott runs operations at Cruise Consulting, a fast-growing startup CFO consulting firm that works with over 275 startup clients. In addition to Scott's operations responsibilities, he advises clients on venture capital fundraising, venture debt, and their own operational issues. In his spare time, Scott publishes Cruise Consulting's Founders and Friends podcast, which interviews startup CEOs, investors, and other service providers in the startup ecosystem. Hello, Scott, and welcome. I imagine it must be weird for you to be on the other side of the microphone. Hey, Diego. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And yes, I thank you for uh, mentioning my podcast. I put a lot of work into that. So this is like relaxing for me. I just get to talk about how we help startups and how we work with globalization partners to, to do that. So it's actually a pleasure. And, and again, I really appreciate you having us on the, on the podcast. Oh, believe me, I have a lot of questions regarding your podcast. But before we begin and go into that topic, let's just talk about Cruise Consulting. What kind of companies reach Cruise Consulting for help? What are their biggest headaches? So we work with, which are kind of like a subset of like small businesses in the United States, but they tend to be technology businesses, software, consumer internet, biotech, life sciences, medtech, and robotics, things like that. And they tend to be, you know, because they've raised venture capital, they tend to grow faster than a kind of standard small business. Yeah. And because of that, they need some extra expertise in their accounting and tax firm, which is where we come in. So we're working with companies that start anywhere from like two people and an idea, and maybe they raise like $500,000, all the way up to companies that are doing over $100 million in revenue. That's $100 million in revenue is not typical, but we just have some great clients we've grown with over the years. Our sweet spot is probably, you know, two employees to 100 employees type of thing. And again, we span the industries of venture capital backed startups. And personally, like we love, I speak for everyone at Cruise in that we could all work at like a different accounting or tax firm, but we love startups. Like there's something magical about being on that growth trajectory and helping someone change the world and change it for the better, we hope. And so we're all kind of addicted to that startup rush. And so that's that's why we choose to work at Cruise. Would it be fair to define Cruise as a CFO as a service firm? Yeah, that's one of the things we do. So we do kind of the things we provide are the monthly accounting. So income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement, all the supporting docs. And we have a dedicated controller for each client. And then we do all the taxes. So federal and state income tax. R&D tax credits, state franchise tax filings, city filings, and then like fixing any payroll tax issues or sales tax issues, things like that. The third bucket is where the CFO comes in. 
We provide also, if the companies want it, we let them have or work with a, a CFO. We have CFOs on staff. We also introduce our CFO friends quite a bit. We work, we have 400 clients now. And so we work with like not only just our own internal CFOs, but all the CFOs across the Valley or New York or Santa Monica or Texas. And so we kind of know who's good. And so they can either work with our folks or work with someone that we recommend. And we're pretty agnostic. We just want them. It's kind of like um, you, you need your CFO to really click with you on a personal level because you're you're in the foxhole together, you know, and you're raising money and you're doing board meetings and do that. So so we don't we don't limit it to just people on our payroll. We like to kind of make sure the company gets someone that they really click and really want to work with long term. Obviously, one thing about working with innovative startups and companies is that sometimes you might be helping first-time entrepreneurs. So what are the usual mistakes that first-time entrepreneurs make regarding the finances of their own startup? Like yeah. how those little things that might be ignored at the beginning could become huge problems later on. Well, it's funny you say that because I've worked, so I've worked my whole career with startups. So I used to do mergers and acquisitions at Hamburg and Quest, JP Morgan for three years, and then I Worked at a venture capital fund for nine years, became a partner. And now I'm on the operations, like consulting, tax, financials uh, side at Cruise. I've seen all the mistakes and I've also seen the founders who do it really well. A couple of the things, the, the first thing that's always really interesting is the serial founders, like the founders who have started multiple companies, yeah. call us like immediately as soon as they're starting the company. And because they know that if they can get all their systems set up, If they can get, you know, good financial infrastructure, good processes and make sure all their taxes and compliance are taken care of right away, then there's no problems. There's no like there's this concept in startups called technical debt where like maybe the code you wrote isn't quite sustainable and you're going to have to go back and rewrite it again. Mm -hmm. there's, there's something like that in accounting and tax debt, too. So if you get it all figured out really quickly and easily. It's easy going forward, easy to maintain, easy to scale. The biggest difference, and some new founders call us right away too, but we see more of the first-time founders waiting six months, waiting a year, waiting two years sometimes. And so they'll call us and be like, ah, I haven't done taxes for two years and I haven't done any financials. And we're like, oh man, it's okay. We can, we can fix it all. It just takes some time and money. But meanwhile, they've been stressed out about that stuff and they probably haven't been operating at an optimal way and they maybe haven't been giving their employees as much confidence because the payroll system isn't working great or whatever's all these little signals that you're also giving your investors because you can't produce financials and tell them, you know, what you're spending money on and how much runway, cash runway you have. There's these little signals that you're sending out saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not ready for prime time yet. And so that's probably the biggest thing we see. That said, I mean, a lot of first-time founders are incredibly successful because one of the character traits I see with first-time founders is they're quick learners. And so they make a mistake and then they realize they made a mistake and they take action and fix that mistake. So we get a lot of those phone calls. Like I had one yesterday where a guy's like, I haven't, I haven't been doing this for six months. I know I should have been doing it. Let's fix it now. Let's get onboarded in a couple of weeks. And I was like, great. And so for us, that's a motivated client. It's probably the same with globalization partners. Like when they know they need to do something, they're going to pay attention and they're going to execute on it because the founders have a demands on their time that you wouldn't believe. There's everyone wants a piece of them. Everyone wants to talk to them. Everyone wants them to make decisions. And so you get this decision fatigue. And it's hard to kind of get everything, take it to completion. And so once we've kind of engaged with them and showed them how easy it can be, how we can de-stress them, They're usually pretty motivated and they take action and get it done pretty quickly. So pretty much, would you say that, you know, 
first-time entrepreneurs are more focused on their product and service and start ignoring the overall importance and relevance of having good finances. And probably the moment they realize what they have been missing on could be too late or it could be not that late, but would will demand more money and time for other firms yeah, like yours yeah. to help them, right? It's never too late. It just takes time and money and energy to fix, which is like one tenth of what it would have taken to do it right in the first place. That said, like I'm, these are gross generalizations because again, there's many first time entrepreneurs who are very focused on their financial infrastructure and doing things correctly and giving good updates to their VCs. It's just more like the problem companies tend to be the first time founders. That, that said, like I'd always worked in investment banking and venture capital. I joined Vanessa when I was 38 years old and I had never been an operator either. You know, we went from three people six years ago to 80 people now. And I've had to learn all those same lessons. Like I'm the guy who's figuring out a lot of our operational stuff at Cruise. And so I've had that same ramp. I've had the same learning process that the founders are having that we work with. And so I can relate to them on a very personal level. Just this morning, I, we had a company growing that's gone from like 20 to 80 people in six months. Mm. And I was like, you gotta like, listen, hire an HR person, get more money in the bank. Like there's a couple of things you really need to do quickly before something happens and it's hard to recover. And it's all because I learned those lessons too, you know? And so there's no shame no, no one should feel bad about learning a few tough lessons along the way because it's just, it's the nature of startups. It's the nature of entrepreneurship. The, the critical thing is learning from that mistake, surrounding yourself with good uh, service providers, people who know how things should be, including crews, globalization partners, a good lawyer. All these things are really, really helpful to you. It'll just, you can't do everything as a founder and you have to get good at delegating, good at trusting your advisors. And, and the sooner you make that kind of adjustment in your head that you're going to trust other people and rely on them, it just gets a lot easier. What are those financial and accounting things or signals that give confidence to investors? What are the most evident signs that a startup is indeed managing its finances correctly? Great question. So for us, one of the things we really focus on is making sure our clients can go through financial due diligence like immediately. So we say be due diligence ready day one, meaning as soon as you come off of our onboarding process, you are ready for due diligence. And that means either venture capital investment due diligence, you know, a VC or M&A due diligence and from like an, an acquirer. And the reason why we say be ready like every day is because you can never anticipate really when that's going to happen. What ends up happening for the good companies is people in the community start hearing about your traction, hearing good things. And those VCs just reach out like they're not shy. Their job in life is to find good companies. That's all they do. They're like hunters. They want it. When, when you get that email saying, can you meet me for coffee? That means they are interested in your company. And if that meeting goes well, they're going to want to move to term sheet and due diligence really, really quickly. And so the founders we see getting in trouble are the ones that tell themselves they'll wait catch up, do the financials and tax compliance later, because as soon as that call happens or that meeting happens, and it's the same with acquirers, especially public company acquirers like Apple, Cisco, those are companies we've sold companies to in the past. They are judging you. They are judging how responsive you are. They're judging how professional you are, how professional your financials are. If you have to tell them like, oh, I can't send you financials for two weeks because I'm redoing some stuff. Or, ooh, we didn't file taxes last year. 
or no, I don't have a breakdown of my customer uh, spend by category. You know, all these things are little kind of negatives that start to add up. And really what, you know, think about the person that's buying your company or the person that's investing in your company. Everyone in life has a boss. If you're working with a partner at a venture capital fund, the rest of the partnership or maybe the managing director is their boss. And so if they make an investment in you and you are disorganized and stop hitting your numbers and stop growing as fast as you need to be growing, that reflects very poorly on them. And so everyone's looking at these little signals. Same thing in acquisition. Like, you know, someone in that organization, the corporate development person has agreed to buy you and usually like a line manager or like a business, someone who manages the business you'll be working in has agreed to buy your company. If they sense that you're going to start missing your numbers and can't get your act together and are a poorly run company, they're going to walk away or they're going to severely reduce the amount of compensation they're willing to spend to buy your company. And so you see this happen sometimes where a, a company that's buttoned up and everything's organized and they put on a great show during due diligence, including tax. They get a better valuation than the company that's disorganized and the, the acquirer or VC knows is going to need a lot of cleanup. And so that's the single biggest thing. It's really, it's a mentality. Yes, you need to have great income statement, balance sheet, cash flow statement, all the supporting docs. You need to have all your tax compliance in place. You need to have a financial model that you can walk them through. Ideally, you would show them budget to actuals so that you can show them how you hit your plan every month. And you can show them, hey, all my tax compliance is in order. We are sitting, we, we have a dedicated tax team. We're pretty unique in that a lot of people we compete against try to outsource taxes. And sometimes they outsource it to another outsourcer who's got someone else working on it. It's like three degrees of separation. It's, it's actually kind of amazing. It's pretty scary. But our team is sitting on those diligence calls, doing the reps and warranties with you on your tax compliance. Like that is one of the most valuable things anyone can do for your startup. And so having all these things organized, putting on just a good show really breeds confidence for everybody associated with the transaction. They're not going to retrade the deal. They're not going to try to give you, reduce the compensation or, or lowball you. They're going to be excited because they putting off all the signals that you're a well-run company, which is exciting for them because that's why they're buying you in the first place. Let's talk about valuations. Yes. So I used to be an entrepreneur here in Mexico and valuations always seem to require a bit of dark magic, especially when you are speaking and talking about tech startups that may have a lot of intangible things of great value, you know, like algorithms or patents or some intellectual property. So uh, tell us what are the key factors to consider when you are doing a valuation of a startup, especially considering, you know, all the types of intellectual property that can be part of that valuation. It's a great question. So there's two types of valuations that matter for a startup and they have different kind of goals and customers. And the first one is, doing a 409A valuation for stock options, which is an internal valuation, which I'll talk about. And the second one is venture capital valuations or the valuation of your company in a VC round or M&A even. So let's do the 409A first because I'll kind of set the foundation. That's the academic way of doing it. So the academic, like you learn this in school if you got an MBA or something like that. The different ways of valuing a company for a 409A, which is which basically prices the stock options for the employees, the common stock, is you use a discounted cash flow analysis. So you look at the free cash flow into the future years. You discount that, that back at a certain discount rate. Usually it's pretty high because startups are risky and there's not a lot of visibility. You get a number for that. You also can use what's called the back solve method, which is 
you take the latest VC financing and you apply some discounts for marketability and illiquidity and you get your common stock valuation out of that. You can also do multiples, which are like the trading multiples of what publicly traded companies that are similar to your company trade at. So maybe you are doing a search engine and you're very similar to Google and you know that Google trades at 10x revenue. Well, your company probably trades at 10x revenue or something in that ballpark. You can also look at M&A multiples and see what people paid as a percentage of revenue or earnings. And so those are, and then the final one is the cost to recreate, which is basically like, hey, if we were to build this technology from scratch, how much would it cost? And the cost to recreate is kind of like, everyone usually ends up kind of the same place or whatever they spent. That would be, you know, the valuation for those. And so those all go together and determine what is the common stock valuation for employees for their stock options. So again, very academic way of doing it, right? And you would think, or they teach you this in school, they're like, that's how VCs think. When in actuality, venture capitalists have a different different way of valuing companies. They incorporate all those things, especially kind of what the future revenue and profits can be. And they typically do apply some multiple analysis, especially as you become a later stage company and you're more predictable and more real, and they can actually do some revenue multiples on your company. But a lot of times what drives the valuation of a startup is just pure capitalism, pure negotiations. <laughs> it is getting a couple venture capitalists interested in your company and being a very good salesperson. The people who get the best valuations typically are very, very good at articulating what they've built and how it's going to change the world and how it's going to be very lucrative. Those three things. And sometimes I talk to founders who are like, ah, I didn't get a very good valuation. And it's like, kind of like life's not fair, right? There's some people who are great salespeople. Maybe they can't even walk and chew gum at the same time or build anything, but they're great salespeople. And so those people have an advantage here. Now, don't get down if you're an entrepreneur who's not a great salesperson, because usually substance wins over time. And if you're building something really great, the venture capitalists will find you, give you money. Maybe you don't maximize your valuation, but you'll do really, really well along the way. But getting those VCs to bid against each other and drive the price up is really how you get a better valuation for startups. There's some rules of thumb, like a pre-seed company might be at a five to $8 million valuation. And a seed stage company might be at 10 to $15 million valuation. And a series A might be 20 to $30 million valuation. Those are all rules of thumb. And again, startups are like this. It's like fundraising is like pure capitalism in that when someone sees something they want, they're going to bid it up and get into that deal. Like I think Facebook's Series A was done at like an $80 million valuation by Excel like 10 years ago, right? Or 12 years ago, whenever it was. And everyone who Excel was competing against thought, oh my God, they're overpaying for Facebook. That's crazy. What a dumb valuation that is, right? Turned out Excel knew what they were doing and made like a thousand times return wow. on that money, right? So the interesting thing about venture capital valuations at the VC level is they tend to be very binary. Either the company does really well and everyone makes a ton of money and it doesn't even matter what valuation they got in at or the company doesn't do very well at all and everyone ends up losing all their money or most of their money. And it didn't matter what valuation they got in at. And you kind of see that this concept of like the valuation not being super important, especially in very frothy, hot markets like we have today. Like this is, we're recording this in early 2021. And this is one of the hottest markets I've ever seen in my career. And I started in 1999 during the dot-com boom, working at investment bank, 
doing M&A and IPOs. This is hot. This is, this is like as good as it gets. So if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, I highly encourage you to raise extra capital now. If the hot market continues, great. That's awesome yeah. for everybody. But it doesn't usually continue like this for much longer than six months, maybe a year. I mean, you're seeing a lot of IPOs. You're seeing a lot of SPAC IPOs, special purpose vehicles. You're seeing a lot of M&A. We're, we're seeing a ton of M&A accrues with our client base. So now is a great time to uh, flex those sales muscles, polish up your PowerPoint presentation, show venture capitalists what you've built and raise money because it's always good to have cash on a rainy day. So we have spoken about, you know, first time entrepreneurs making mistakes or things like that. But what about challenges that startups and companies face when they are starting their international expansion? What are the things they need to change ah. when growing to several territories? Yes, this is a big, especially the pandemic has really changed things a lot in that we've been remote for three years at Cruise, like Cruise internally. We have people all over the world that we've been working with for many years. And so for us, when, when COVID hit, we didn't really skip a beat. But a lot of companies, they, they were used to going in the office every day and they hired locally. And all of a sudden they were forced to work remotely, people working at home. And a lot of those companies realized like, hey, wait a second, we don't need to be hiring within 20 square miles of our office. We can hire globally. And so especially in the tech world, a lot of tech companies that hire globally anyways already, but this really exploded. All of a sudden people wanted, they didn't really care where you lived. They wanted you for your talent and for what you contribute to the company. And so this really, really accelerated. And when you're going global, you have a couple options. As you know, you can start a subsidiary in another country, which is expensive. I don't really recommend that unless you're going to get to like 10 or 20 employees in that country. You can keep people as contractors, but a lot of people don't like being contractors. They want to be employees. There's also rules in every country that make it so that you really, so in the United States, you can't always make someone a contractor. The government wants people to be protected. They want the pay, people to pay payroll taxes. So they want you to be an employee. And so the third option is what's called a global PEO, which is what Globalization Partners does, which is why we refer Globalization Partners to a ton of startups. And the basic idea is you can um, work through Globalization Partners to who has entities in all these different countries across the globe and say you want to hire someone in Brazil or Argentina or Ukraine or China or Australia, wherever it is you want to hire a software developer, say. Globalization Partners can actually hire that person for you. They are technically a direct employee of Globalization Partners, but also a employee of your company. And it can be transparent for that employee in that country. They're going to get benefits. They're going to get a salary. They're going to get a lot of other perks that come with being an employee. And so it's a win-win for everybody. And the nice thing is working through a global PEO like Globalization Partners is that you don't have to start that subsidiary and rack up a ton of legal costs. And it actually makes your taxes more complicated. Like we have to do a lot of extra stuff on tax returns for companies that have foreign subsidiaries. And there's penalties if you don't do it right. And winding those things down takes a lot of work. And so really the global PEO market has responded to the extra demand of startups wanting to hire internationally. It's really accelerated. It's actually a really exciting time, I'm sure, to be at Globalization Partners. Pretty much companies need to change their accounting and finance strategy when they are starting to hire people internationally. Otherwise, they will face huge problems, compliance issues in the near future, right? If you're not ready for this and set up, you just don't get that employee. It's a competitive world to hire good people. I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I have with founders who are hiring internationally, 
who have no clue. They don't even know a service like this, Globalization Partners, is available. And so we really kind of shine the light on it, educate them, and boom, they're ready to roll and it makes their life a heck of a lot easier. And for that employee on the other side who's in a country that's working with a US-based startup, it's great for them. They're getting to work with a world-class startup that's raised venture capital and is going places and it's professional and can put the infrastructure in place for them to be an employee and make them successful. It's just, it's a win-win all the way around. And that's why we worked with Globalization Partners so often and, and why we like working with you folks. I think it is time to talk about the podcast. How did you come up with the idea of doing a podcast, especially so many years ago? For how long have you been doing it? It's funny you say that because I feel like I should have done it like I had the idea like maybe 10 or 15 years ago because I was an early podcast listener. I always just liked it. I remember listening to like Bill Simmons podcast and Adam Carolla and some other podcasts and thinking, thinking oh, I should do this too. And then I ended up, um, but I never really took action on it. And I ended up, uh, when I joined Vanessa at Cruise, we co-located in an office with a team called ThoughtBot, which is a top software development shop across the United States. And they actually had a podcast. They were super early in this. And so their engineer and team taught me how to record and I could use their equipment and I just had to find an editor. It took me about 10, you'd probably know this, it takes about 10 to have any clue what you're doing. But then after that, you get better pretty fast. And so I started doing it and uh, it was really fun for me. Having like my favorite part of my job is being able to listen to what the founders are building and what they're doing and imagine what's going to happen in the future. And so doing the podcast allowed me to have those conversations with our clients and even with service providers or folks who could make our clients life easier um, in a more extensive way. And so I got to do like a deep dive over 30 minutes or 45 minutes with the founders or with the service providers. And so it's really rewarding. It's just like kind of scratches my natural itch of curiosity. And so, yeah, so I think I've done like 200 now and I think I've been doing it for like six years. So, um, but it's one of those things where you just wake up one day, you just do it, you get in the habit of doing it. And all of a sudden you've got 200 podcasts. There's a, there's a, a venture capitalist, uh, blog, who's a VC, who's a blogger that I've been reading named Fred Wilson, who's a very successful VC who I've been reading for like 15 years. And, um, he's made my life so much better. And I hope in a very small way, I've made, you know, folks out there either helped educate them on a concept that they're having trouble with or help them find a vendor or just help all the entrepreneurs we work with find more customers or more awareness. So for me, it's really fun. And for them, it's good exposure. And, and hopefully we're making a little dent in the universe. How has it boosted like Cruise's presence online? Yeah, it helps a lot. I think what it, what it really does is founders ask me a question about something. And then I say, oh, like, for example, globalization partners, someone will be like, hey, I'm going to hire someone internationally. What do I need to do? And I'll be like, guess what? I recorded a podcast with Nicole Sahin from Globalization Partners probably a year ago now. Mm -hmm. And I send them the podcast so they can listen to Nicole tell the entire story of how she founded the company and the opportunity she saw and all the services. And so in a weird way, that podcast is like probably the best sales technique that Globalization Partners could ever have. And I do that for tons of vendors, you know, and tons of startups. And so it's really just this personalized thing and people can hear it, that authentic voice from the founder or from the creator. And it's just way more powerful than reading something or hearing about it secondhand. You hear it from the source. So that's that's how it's helped us. I think, yeah, it's just so much of, uh, especially now where everyone's remote, so much work can be kind of impersonal or through email or whatever. 
But when you get a chance to turn, you know, you go for a walk and you turn someone's voice on and they tell you about the thing they're most passionate about in the world, it really resonates with people and, and makes a connection and, and makes life and business more fun. Does every single organization out there should start their own podcast? Well, I, I would say you got to be, it's got to fit your personality. Like my wife, our founder, Vanessa, she's more of a writer. So she writes a lot of stuff and shares her knowledge that way. Uh, I'm more of a talker, as you can probably tell. I think I've, <laughs> I think I've talked most of this. Uh, so I hope I didn't talk your ear off, but it's something I like to do. And so, so I would, I would encourage people to find something, whatever medium it is, to just express themselves in a business sense um, and tell their story and and help other people tell their story. You might create the coolest Instagram account of all time for startups, or you might you know, be a writer and publish a blog every day for two years or do a podcast or do video series, whatever it is. I think it's just, it's, it's rewarding. It's fun. And it can, it can definitely help you in your, in your career in ways that are really hard to anticipate. Um, so I do, I do recommend doing something. And if podcast is your, your jam, then do a podcast. Fantastic. Thank you very much for this conversation, Scott. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Diego. I really appreciate it. And thank you to Globalization Partners for being an awesome partner of Cruise Consulting. We've had We've helped a lot of startups along the way and, uh, and looking forward to doing a lot more together. And that's it. This is the end of our show. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Remember that you can find all past episodes on Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts. If you are planning to hire a new global team member, Globalization Partners makes it easy to onboard international talent in a matter of minutes. Go to globalization-partners.com to get started.